with the May 2012 Respiratory Care Podcast. This is Dean Hess, editor of the journal, along with Sarah Forge. Sarah, let's get started with our first paper. Reduction in the incidence of ventilator-associated pneumonia, a multidisciplinary approach, is by Araliga and colleagues. They conducted a retrospective cohort study of all adults admitted to one of the four adult ICUs intubated and on invasive mechanical ventilation. They implemented a ventilator bundle in April of 2007 and report the incidence of ventilator-associated pneumonia, or VAP, in 2008 and after oral care performed by respiratory therapists in 2009. The primary outcome was reduction of the microbiologically confirmed VAP rate over a two-year period. During the study period, 2,588 patients received invasive mechanical ventilation in the adult ICUs. The VAP rate during 2008 was 4.3 per 1,000 ventilator days, and the 2009 rate was 1.2 per 1,000 ventilator days. Antibiotic days were less in 2009 versus 2008. The mean stay in the ICU was unchanged, and the stay in the hospital was decreased in 2009. Hospital mortality was not different between the two years. Adherence with the ventilator bundle was above 92% during the study period, but the oral care adherence improved from 33% to 97% after respiratory therapists assumed responsibility for oral care. The authors conclude that reduction of the incidence of VAP occurred with an intervention that included respiratory therapists doing oral care in patients receiving invasive mechanical ventilation. Prevention of VAP has received much attention in recent years. In this paper, the authors evaluated the impact of oral care performed by respiratory therapists and found that there was a reduction in the incidence of VAP when respiratory therapists assumed responsibility for this. As Sandrock points out in his editorial, this study highlights the importance of a multidisciplinary approach with a team working together towards a common goal to improve patient outcomes. It also highlights the role that respiratory therapists play in VAP prevention. What is important is that respiratory therapists and nurses work together to implement the VAP bundle with the goal of reducing the rate of VAP. Our next paper is by Otto et al. Potential Inadequacy of Automatic Tube Compensation to Decrease Inspiratory Workload After at Least 48 Hours of Endotracheal Tube Use in the Clinical Setting. They enrolled 20 critically ill patients requiring mechanical ventilation for longer than 48 hours. After extubation, they collected the used endotracheal tubes and measured the pressure time product for resistance through the tube by using a bellows-in-a-box lung model that simulated spontaneous breathing at a respiratory rate of 10 breaths per minute, inspiratory time of 1 second, and tidal volumes of 300 milliliters, 500 milliliters, and 700 milliliters. The ventilator was set at automatic tube compensation of 100% with PEEP of 5 cm water and FiO2 of 0.21. The flow and airway pressure at the proximal and distal ends of the endotracheal tube were recorded and the pressure time product integrated from the distal endotracheal tube was analyzed. 
The pressure time product increased with tidal volume during tube compensation. Even at 100% tube compensation, the ventilator did not completely compensate for the resistance imposed by the endotracheal tube. In used endotracheal tubes, peak flow and peak airway pressures were lower and pressure time product was greater than in new endotracheal tubes. The authors conclude that automatic tube compensation does not necessarily compensate for an endotracheal tube-imposed respiratory workload. Endotracheal tube configuration changes and tracheal secretions can increase resistance and decrease the ability to compensate for the increased respiratory workload. Automatic tube compensation is used to overcome the flow-dependent resistive workload of the endotracheal tube. However, resistance through the endotracheal tube can be increased by tracheal secretions or tube deformities. Otto et al. evaluated the effect of tube compensation using endotracheal tubes from critically ill patients requiring mechanical ventilation for longer than 48 hours. They found that tube configuration changes and tracheal secretions can increase resistance and decrease the ability to compensate for the increased respiratory workload. These results are consistent with the findings from other studies which suggest that automatic tube compensation might not improve the tolerance of a spontaneous breathing trial. As Lahare points out in his editorial, tube compensation is safe but its use remains controversial. Non-invasive ventilation outside the intensive care unit from the patient point of view, a pilot study, is by Cabrini and colleagues. They prospectively interviewed patients successfully treated with NIV for acute respiratory failure outside the ICU. Subjects were interviewed 24 to 48 hours after NIV suspension. Exclusion criteria were NIV failure, patient not competent, patient unwilling to participate in the study, patient transferred to the ICU. 45 consecutive patients were included in the study. Only 20% participated in the initial setting of the NIV parameters. More than 40% reported they never had the possibility to discuss the NIV treatment. 80% reported that they were never asked to try another interface. All subjects knew how to call for help, but only one-fourth had been trained to remove the mask, and 22% reported not being able at all to remove the mask if needed. One half of the subjects reported receiving help immediately when needed, but 15% waited more than three minutes. All subjects reported complications and 18% reported respiratory worsening while on NIV. The authors conclude that subjects reported a low level of involvement in the initial setting of the NIV treatment, a low satisfaction about communication with the caring staff, and a suboptimal safety level in case of emergency. Although NIV is increasingly utilized outside the ICU for patients with acute respiratory failure, success and failure risk factors and patient safety aspects have been poorly explored in this setting. Cabrini et al. evaluated the perspective of the patient to use of NIV outside the ICU. Subjects reported a low level of involvement in the initial setting of NIV treatment, a low satisfaction about communication with the care staff, and a suboptimal safety level in case of emergency. In their editorial, Kasmeric and Villar emphasized the importance of careful patient selection for application of NIV outside the ICU. 
Survey of Directors of Respiratory Therapy Departments regarding the future education and credentialing of respiratory care students and staff is by Kazmarek and colleagues. Survey responses from respiratory therapy department directors or managers are the basis of this report. After pilot testing and refining the questions, a self-administered, internet-based, American Association for Respiratory Care-endorsed survey was used to gather information from 2,368 individuals designated as respiratory therapy department directors or managers in the AARC membership list as of May 2010. A total of 663 valid survey responses were received. On average, the vacancy rate of surveyed hospitals was only 0.81 full-time equivalents. Responses by directors on 66 competencies described in the second 2015 conference as needed by graduate and practicing respiratory therapists included 90% agreement on 42, between 50% and 90% agreement on 19, and less than 50% agreement on five competencies. There was no consensus among directors on the academic preparation of new graduates, with 36.8% indicating a preference for a baccalaureate or master's degree, 36.7% indicating a preference for an associate degree, and 176 or 26.5% indicating no preference. 41.8% of respondents indicated that a baccalaureate or master's degree in respiratory therapy should be required to qualify for a license to deliver respiratory care. The survey indicates that 81.2% of directors are in favor of the RRT credential being required to practice in 2015 and beyond. The authors conclude that there was good agreement that graduate and practicing respiratory therapists should obtain the vast majority of the 66 competencies surveyed and that the entry-level credential should be the RRT. Kazmarek et al. surveyed directors of respiratory therapy departments regarding the future education and credentialing of respiratory care students and staff. There was good agreement that graduate and practicing therapists should obtain the vast majority of the competencies surveyed and that the entry-level credential should be the RRT. Similar numbers of managers favored an entry-level baccalaureate degree as those who favored an associate degree. These findings are important in the context of the 2015 and Beyond Conference sponsored by the American Association for Respiratory Care. Next is the paper, High Flow Oxygen Therapy, Pressure Analysis in a Pediatric Airway Model by Urbano et al. An experimental in vitro study was performed. A high flow oxygen therapy system was connected to three types of interface, nasal cannula, nasal mask, and oronasal mask, and applied to two types of pediatric mannequin, infant and neonatal. The pressures generated in the circuit, in the airway, and in the pharynx were measured at flows of 5, 10, 15, and 20 liters per minute. The experiment was conducted with and without a mouth leak. The pressures generated with the different interfaces were very similar. The maximum pressure recorded was 4 centimeters water with a flow of 20 liters per minute via nasal cannula or nasal mask. When the mouth of the mannequin was held open, the pressures reached in the airway and pharynxes were undetectable. The authors conclude that high flow oxygen therapy systems produced a low level CPAP in an experimental pediatric model even with the use of very high flow rates.
The mechanism of high flow oxygen therapy and the pressures reached in the airway have not been defined. The objective of this study was to analyze the pressure generated by a high flow oxygen therapy in an experimental model of the pediatric airway. High flow oxygen therapy systems produced a low level of CPAP in the experimental pediatric model, even with the use of very high flows. Linear regression analyses showed similar relationships between flow and pressures measured in the pharynx and in the airway. The maximum pressure recorded was 4 cm of water at a flow of 20 liters per minute. When the mouth of the mannequin was held open, however, the pressures in the airway and the pharynx were undetectable. Effects of exercise training on pulmonary mechanics and functional status in patients with prolonged mechanical ventilation is by Chen et al. 27 subjects on PMV in a respiratory care center were divided into an exercise training group and a control group. The exercise program comprised 10 sessions of exercise training. The measurement of pulmonary mechanics and physical functional status were performed pre-study and post-study. The hospitalization outcomes included days of mechanical ventilation, hospitalization days, and weaning and mortality rates during RCC stay. The training group had significant improvement in tidal volume and rapid shallow breathing index after training. No significant change was found in the control group except respiratory rate. Both groups had significant improvement in functional status during their study. The authors conclude that subjects with prolonged mechanical ventilation demonstrated significant improvement in pulmonary mechanics and functional status after exercise training. The functional status and outcomes in patients with prolonged mechanical ventilation are often limited by poor endurance and pulmonary mechanics, which result from the primary disease or prolonged time bedridden. Chen et al. evaluated the impact of exercise training on pulmonary mechanics, physical function status, and hospitalization outcomes in patients receiving prolonged mechanical ventilation. They found that subjects receiving prolonged mechanical ventilation in their respiratory care center demonstrated significant improvement in pulmonary mechanics and functional status after exercise training. Intrapulmonary effects of setting parameters in a portable intrapulmonary percussive ventilation device is by Toussaint and colleagues. They conducted an in vitro study aimed at comparing the changes in intrapulmonary effects resulting from changes in parameters in three portable IPV devices. Parameters were set in 72 combinations of frequency at 90 to 250 cycles per minute, inspiratory to expiratory time ratio from 1 to 2 to 3 to 1, and pressure from 10 to 60 centimeters water. Four resulting effects were recorded on a test lung via a pneumotachometer, the expiratory to inspiratory flow rate, PEEP, ventilation, and percussion. Percussion was assessed by the end slope of the pressure curve. Analysis of variance was used for data analysis. The expiratory to inspiratory flow ratio increased with increasing inspiratory to expiratory time ratio. PEEP increased with increasing frequency, pressure, and inspiratory to expiratory time ratio. Ventilation increased with increasing pressure and decreasing frequency. Percussion increased with increasing frequency and decreasing inspiratory to expiratory time ratio and with increasing pressure 
when inspiratory to expiratory time ratio was 1 to 1 or less. The authors conclude that changing the parameters considerably modulates the mechanical effects produced by portable IPV devices in the lungs. Despite the potential benefits of intrapulmonary percussive ventilation in various respiratory diseases, the impact of setting parameters on the mechanical effects produced by IPV in the lungs is unknown. To address this, Tuzant et al. compared the intrapulmonary effects resulting from changes in parameters in three portable IPV devices using a lung model. They found that changing the parameters considerably modulates the mechanical effects produced by portable IPV devices in the lungs. Increasing frequency increased peep and percussion, but decreased ventilation. Increasing inspiratory to expiratory time increased peep and expiratory to inspiratory flow ratio and decreased percussion. Increasing pressure increased peep and ventilation. Although a bench study, these results provide insight into the use of IPV. Next is the paper, Helmet Non-Invasive Mechanical Ventilation in Patients with Acute Post-Operative Respiratory Failure by Redondo et al. This was a prospective observational study. The use of NIV was assessed for a period of two years in a post-operative ICU. Demographic data were collected, as well as acute respiratory failure and arterial blood gas readings. Hemodynamic changes were assessed using pulse contour cardiac output technology, and the clinical development of subjects was recorded. All subjects who developed acute respiratory failure were treated using NIV as their primary care, depending on whether the technique was successful or the subject required intubation. The risk factors that determined failure in the application of NIV were subsequently determined. Of the 99 patients presenting with postoperative acute respiratory failure treated with NIV using a helmet, 75% did not require intubation. Following logistic regression analysis, the authors determined that there are three independent risk factors for the failure of NIV, ARDS, pneumonia, and lack of improvement with NIV in one hour. They conclude that NIV using a helmet could provide an effective alternative to conventional ventilation in selected patients with postoperative acute respiratory failure. The aim of this study by Redondo et al. was to determine factors predicting failure in the use of NIV, specifically CPAP, with a helmet in patients with acute postoperative respiratory failure. They found that NIV could provide an effective alternative to conventional ventilation in selected patients with postoperative acute respiratory failure. The three risk factors associated with NIV failure were ARDS, pneumonia, and lack of improvement in PaO2-FiO2 ratio within one hour of NIV initiation. This information will be helpful when initiating NIV in this patient population. Factors associated with misdiagnosis of smear-negative tuberculosis and experience in Taiwan is by Yang and colleagues. They reviewed the records of 193 patients whose diagnosis with TB included conflicting test results and were reported to the Taiwan Centers for Disease Control in 2004. When other conditions were found to underlie the initial abnormal chest x-ray finding, the diagnosis was revised. Mycobacterium tuberculosis was isolated from sputum samples in 
non-tuberculous mycobacteria from 2% and no bacteriologic evidence of M. tuberculosis from 61%. The initial diagnosis of TB was revised for 13.5% of patients. Patients with positive M. tuberculosis culture had a lower incidence of revised diagnosis than those with negative for mycobacterial culture and those with non-tuberculous mycobacteria. Chest cavitations in this study were not a significant predictor of revised diagnosis. The authors conclude that an incorrect diagnosis of TB, despite a negative sputum smear, is more likely to be made for patients positive for non-tuberculous mycobacteria culture and less likely for patients with positive M. tuberculosis culture. A negative sputum smear from a patient with history, physical examination, and chest x-ray findings suggestive of TB presents a diagnostic dilemma. Yang et al. investigated the possible factors associated with a misdiagnosis and inappropriate treatment of TB among such patients. They found that an incorrect diagnosis of TB, despite a negative sputum smear result, is more likely to be made for patients positive for non-tuberculosis mycobacteria culture and less likely for patients with positive M. tuberculosis culture. Our final research paper this month is Effect of Diffuse Panbronchiolitis Critical Region 1 Polymorphisms on the Risk of Aspirin-Exacerbated Respiratory Disease in Korean Asthmatics by Lee et al. Genotyping of six polymorphisms was carried out on 189 Korean patients with asthma stratified into 93 aspirin-exacerbated respiratory disease cases and 96 aspirin-tolerant asthma controls. Subjects who exhibited significant decrease of FEV1 by aspirin provocation were identified as aspirin-exacerbated respiratory disease subjects. Initial analysis revealed significant association of RS2517449 with aspirin-exacerbated respiratory disease. However, the association signal disappeared after multiple testing corrections. In addition, RS2517449 and RS224084 also showed association signals with decline of FEV1 after aspirin provocation. After testing for multiple comparisons, only the association signal from RS2517449 was retained, while other polymorphisms showed no associations with the risk of aspirin-exacerbated respiratory disease and FEV1 decline. The authors conclude that polymorphisms in diffuse panbronchiolitis critical region 1 are not associated with the risk of aspirin-exacerbated respiratory disease. Lee et al. explored the association between polymorphisms in the human diffuse panbronchiolitis critical region 1 gene and aspirin-exacerbated respiratory disease and asthma phenotype. They found that polymorphisms in diffuse panbronchiolitis critical region 1 are not associated with the risk of aspirin-exacerbated respiratory disease in Korean asthmatics. This month, we publish reviews on the ICU follow-up clinic and chest ultrasonography in the ICU. We also publish a clinical practice guideline on humidification during invasive and non-invasive mechanical ventilation. Our case reports are on the expectant management of pneumothorax in preterm infants receiving assisted ventilation, use of an endoscopy face mask in patients with gastric distension undergoing non-invasive ventilation for acute respiratory failure, high-frequency oscillatory ventilation for rescue from refractory hypoxemia in a patient with transfusion-related acute lung injury, 
and an inpatient model for positive airway pressure desensitization. Our teaching case is of a long-standing tracheobronchial foreign body in an adult. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.